Well, beloved, uh, I absolutely adore this passage. It shows God's absolute immense power to preserve his people while at the same time silencing his opposition. So, oh, uh, just uh, forewarning, you guys have, uh, uh, you guys not only get Blake, but you get Beach Blake, post Beach Blake. And so if I twitch or squirm, it's not because I'm, you know, acting out of the spirit. We don't do that here. Uh, but it is because I am uh, in great pain as I bring this to you. Uh, but so our passage um, is a glorious one. And in, in studying for it, I really came across, I really came across uh, the stories of three men uh, throughout you know, the past several hundred years. Um, one first uh, among them being Frederick, Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a philosopher um, and a man who vehemently despised Christianity as a religion of weaklings. He is the one who famously declared, God is dead. Um, he, he, he did this while pondering and, and demonstrating what the, the modern man really needs. It is not God, it is uh, science, it is personhood, right? It is intellect. He uh, made a life of opposing God. And this opposition eventually led him to utter madness, as he pushed himself over the brink of insanity for the later portions of his life. He went absolutely nuts. No one had any idea what he was talking about in the later portions of his life. Second story was a man named Sinclair Lewis. He was a writer in the 1930s, and he won a Nobel Prize for his writing. He wrote a novel entitled uh, Elmer Gantry, in which he mocked God. His protagonist was an evangelist uh, who was an alcoholic adulterer, um, who seek to leech off of the funds and the good generosity of the church. And so he, through telling the story, is mocking God all the while. Lewis vehemently opposed God and his people. His opposition cost him his sobriety, and eventually he died a sad, lonely death, a hopeless alcoholic death in a clinic near Rome. Lastly, a man very, very famous in America, especially nowadays, uh, is Ernest Hemingway. He was a man's man, but most of you probably know this man by name at least, but he was also a man who also won a Nobel Prize for his literature, for his writing. He was also another man that intentionally and strictly opposed God. Hemingway considered himself living proof that a person could successfully oppose God with no consequences, and apparently he had none, well, at least for a while, because he consequently his, his opposition consequently led him uh, to such deep despair that he eventually took his own life. Why do I bring these men up? As we see in our text today, there has always been and will continue always to be men and women who oppose God. And their ends are rarely pretty. And so, their ends are not entirely pleasant and their lives are not to be envied. We are to not find ourselves opposing God, but rather submitting to God. Today, we find ourselves looking at two men. We look at Peter, who's imprisoned and delivered by miraculous means, and then we'll look at Herod, who, in his pride, found himself opposing God and uh, eventually destroyed by miraculous means. Miraculously regular, but we'll talk about that in a minute. TM, trademark. Before we dive into the main portion of our text, I think it may be helpful to do a little bit of background as to what's going on, because honestly, our text kind of does that. It starts with a bit of a historic background and introduction. So, oh, we find ourselves in a time of King Herod, our, uh, our text tells us. 
King Herod, this is not the Herod that we learn about in the Gospel of John that beheaded John. It was uh, Antipas, right? This is actually his grandson, Agrippa the first, not to be confused with Agrippa the second, who will eventually uh, be the one that arrests Paul in the very same area that Peter is, is being kept, will arrest Paul and then imprison him. Uh, and, and we'll hear his defense in Acts 26, right? So that King Agrippa is King Agrippa II. That's this one's son. So this King Agrippa is not the same one as those two. Though this man is swift to enact justice, he is swift to enact the sword. He lives indeed by the sword, as our sermon title uh, demonstrates. He is very swift to bring down judgment and justice on what he thinks uh, is to be opposition of himself, so um, you're, you're going to hear, hear me reference the name Josephus a lot this morning. Josephus is an early church historian in the first century. He records much of what we see recorded in the New Testament. He records that in his history, just with a little more detail, a little more flavor, um, because he's not focusing on you know displaying God as being massively holy, but he's actually just dealing with history. He's a Christian, but he's a historian. He's coming from that perspective rather than Luke, who's accounting this, is a, a historian, but he wants to display God's work through the church. That's his primary means of communication. And oddly enough, they line up almost exactly in every occurrence. Study church history. This is a sidebar. Study church history it is amazing. If you, are, if you are a Christian looking to grow in your development and understanding of who God is and you're not at least trying to read glimpses through the, the windows of time into church history, you're missing out on a deep resource that God has for you there. So study church history. So you'll hear me say Josephus a lot. Josephus tells us that the Jews valued King Herod Agrippa I, that they valued him greatly. They loved him. He was generous. Even though he was swift to, to enact judgment, he was generous. And he, he valued the Jews' opinion of him. And so he was a decent, benevolent-ish ruler to them. He was not opposed as you know, Antipas and, and those before him were. He was actually somewhat of a welcomed relief to the people of this area in Jerusalem. King Herod Agrippa, our text tells us, kills the apostle James. James had a public execution. Likely he was beheaded, but it was very much in the, the center of town. It was an event, and they publicly executed James the apostle. This is James, Peter, James, and John, the three that were closest to Jesus that Jesus kind of took with him everywhere and did everything with him that took him up on the, the mount. It was that James was the first of the apostles, the first of the leaders of the church, following after Stephen, who was a you know, pr proto-deacon, the first martyr of the church. James was the first among leadership that was killed and executed for the cause of Christ. And King Herod Agrippa was the one who did this. This is about 12 to 14 years after the ascension and glorification and re return to the father of Jesus. A lot of times we, we don't even realize that it's been that long. This has been a significant portion of time. We read uh, our sort of revivalist mind will want to read these texts and be like, look, what's happening day after day after day. Multitudes are coming to know Christ. While the scripture actually does say that day by day, many were being added to them. That's true. But this is, we're 12 chapters in and we're about 12 years after Christ has left this earth and is reigning on his throne in heaven. So we have to understand this is ordinary. This is what people do when they're Christians. They preach the gospel and people get saved. They live in community with one another. They do what we're doing here. And then God shows up and does miraculous things. Now, he does 
specifically miraculous things in the time of the apostles, but he is still working in much the same way today. And so we, we read this and we so often glaze the fact that this is a pretty significant amount of time from Jesus leaving to where we're at, at now. So we see, uh, again, James is the first apostle to be martyred. This, our text doesn't hint at this, but it's likely that this is purely a political experiment on the part of Herod. It says in verse two, he killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This is a political experiment. He's saying, I wonder, these Jews hate these Christians. <laughs> they absolutely can't stand them because they're uprooting everything they believe in because of this one man who came and died that they killed and has apparently came back to life. But all he knows is the Jews, who I want to gain favor with, the majority of the people in this area, are they oppose these Christians. They hate them. So what if I kill one of their leaders? I wonder what this will do. So he kills James. It's rumored. Uh, it's church tradition stands that at James's execution in the square, literally in, the, in a public place where he, he, his head was lopped off with the sword, at that execution, the guards were so moved, one of them specifically, that a guard was so moved that he chose to give his, his life to whatever James was believing in. I want to believe that too. And he was executed on the spot immediately after James for doing this. That's church tradition. You can go research that on your own. That's kind of what has been passed along through the years. But regardless, Herod's experiment kind of paid off. The Jews hated the church, so when James was killed, they were excited about it. They were there watching. They, they just as, as they put their, their coats down to throw stones at Stephen, they showed up to mock and laugh James as his head fell to the ground. So he wanted to see exactly what this would do. It paid off. It pleased the Jews, and therefore he sent to arrest the leader of this church in Jerusalem this new Christian church during the days of the unleavened bread. So remember, this is a unique time in history where sort of Jew and, and Christian kind of interwove together, right? This is a Judeo-Christian time. The, the, even the Christians were still participating in a lot of what was going on uh, in the, the calendar, the, the Jewish calendar, one of them being the days of the unleavened, unleavened bread leading up to the time of Christ. This is significant and political in that Herod made a point to arrest Peter during this time of year. This is significant for him. As a Jew, Peter is, is participating in all of the things that the Jews regularly did at this time. And this is the same time of year that the Lord Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate. And so the, Luke is, is giving us this information to set the stage in an ominous tone for the, events, for the events that are about to occur. Peter was imprisoned. He was arrested in the days of the unleavened bread and he was imprisoned and put in prison with, our text says, four squads to watch over him. This is 16 people. This is four squads of four people. That's what a squad was. A squad was four centurions uh, that kind of grouped together and worked together. So four squads watching over P Peter. This isn't really unheard of. This is maximum security stuff we're talking about here. Peter was priority one for King Herod. And so they had every intention uh, of doing just what they did with James, a public execution to Peter. Peter understood this. The church understood this. We see in a, a moment why they're praying earnestly is because they just saw James killed in a very like manner. And Peter is arrested and guarded in this way to prepare them for death, prepare Peter for death. So I know this is a rather long intro, but it's gonna serve us to sort of set the stage for the miraculous turn of events that are gonna occur. 
So for the remainder of our text, there are two things I want us to to focus on, two main points of the remainder of our text. First is a prayer-filled peace. We're going to see a prayer-filled peace, right? Again, that's going to be verses 4 through 17. Second is a pang-filled pride. Pang. I needed a peace, so I put pang in there. It's pain, right? A pain-filled, a pang-filled pride, right? So that's verses uh, uh, 18 through 25. That's at the end there, okay? So... First, a prayer-filled peace. So let's, let's see what the response from the church is to Peter's arrest and his guarding by such a, a heavy guard immediately after following the, the death of one of their close brothers and leaders in James the Apostle. What, what is their reaction? Is it, is it revolt? Is it reformation? Is it social reform? Is it a plan to go and by covert means deliver Peter out of the hands of the enemy? What is their first response? earnest prayer. It says that so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. So these are a prayer-filled people. Look, I don't, I'm about to say a few things, and I don't want you to misunderstand me. We need men and women of action. We do. We need people who will enact what God is saying in his word. We, we must be people who have whose prayer leads to conviction and that conviction needs to lead to right action. We need that. We need to be men and women of action if we're going to affect this world for Christ. We absolutely need reform. We need churches and men who are willing to go against the state to say, look, this is what God has said is right. You're demanding that I do otherwise. I'm not doing that. We need to do, do it by radical means. We need to do it by legal means. We need men and women to look at our education system and say, something's broken here. This isn't exactly what, what is glorifying Christ. Let's, let's try and do whatever we can to fix this. We need reform. We need people writing and voting on legislation that brings about good biblical gospel-centered change in our country. We need those things. We need all of these types of people. But there is one man we need more, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. This is what the church understood here. They needed Jesus, so they prayed earnestly to him to deliver Peter. This begs the question, do we we pray for the things that grieve us in our world as much as we do complain about them? Are we praying for the proponents of CRT and wokeism as much as we are reviling them? Are we praying for our children and our public school systems as much as we are trying to eliminate that very system? Are we praying for a post-Christian society that we find ourselves in as much as we are trying to avoid it? Are we praying for our president as much as we are complaining about him? Are we praying for our brothers and sisters in the faith who might have our brothers and sisters in the faith who might have different opinions than us? Then we are condemning them as potential heretics. Are we praying that our church at RBC would grow as much as we are grumbling and complaining that it is not? Do we trust God to answer prayers if we pray them? That's the question. It boils down to, do we trust that God delights in answering the prayers of his people or do we not? These men and women of the church are stricken with worry, with grief, with hopelessness and anxiety, fear, and yet they prayed earnestly to God as the only one in whom they can hope. He's the only one in whom hope can be found. Oh, that we would have faith in the midst of struggle to go before God before we let our flesh creep in. They trusted God to answer prayers, and he did. He answered the prayers. Now, he doesn't always, immediately, but he did here. 
Look with me at the next section of verses, verses 6 through 11. It tells of Peter's miraculous escape from prison. There's not a ton in this section that I really need to expound on, but I, I do want to point out a few things that we may have missed here. This is a very descriptive passage of a miraculous event that God is using to deliver Peter out of prison. But I do want to point out and point your attention to a few things. First, look at the peace that we see here in Peter. Verse 6, it says what? It says, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, shout out two chains, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were, were guarding the prison. So people are guarding him and people are in the stall with him and his legs are literally chained to the legs of two soldiers. And what's, Peter is awaiting his execution. What's he doing? He's sleeping. He's chilling. He's sleeping, deep sleep apparently, we're gonna find out in a minute, deep sleep. He's not just lightly sleep. He is resting deeply in God's providence. What a ridiculous thing to do. In this situation, Peter is hours away from what he knows very well to be a public execution. He's shackled to two men who are watching over him, and he's sleeping. I don't know what you do in times of great distress, but I know myself, and I ain't sleeping in this situation. I am a worrier, and it manifests itself in silent reclusiveness. I shut down, and I recluse, and I worry. Peter trusted in God's sovereign plan much more than I do. Peter rested in God. He resigned himself, not to his fate, whatever that may be. He resigned himself to his God. He chose to acknowledge and remember the good grace of God and say, that's enough for me in sickness and in health, in life or in death, which is what I'm facing now. And he rested. How often do we fail to rest in the midst of struggle and difficulty? We presume I have this as a question, but I'm just going to make it as a statement because it's true of all of us. We presume that all of our fear and worry and anxiety will somehow alter or circumvent God's sovereign plan for us. What good is anxiety doing you to alter the plan of God? Nothing. It does nothing. What, what does submitting to God's ultimate plan in the midst of your anxiety do? Everything. Jesus promises rest to his people. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Psalm 116, 5 and 7, gracious Lord, I'm sorry, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The psalmist is remembering God's providence. He's remembering God's faithfulness to him throughout his life. And he says, return to me, my soul. Don't go, don't go so far out onto the ledge that you forsake God and that you worry and you're overridden with anxiety. Return to me. Remember the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I can only think of, of this passage brought to my mind uh, uh, the, this morning even, Mark 4 when there's a storm around the disciples, they're freaking out, they're, they're about to die. The ship's gonna be overturned, it's gonna be shattered into pieces, they're gonna die, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping on the ship. And they go to him, and they say, teacher, are you, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up, and what does he say? What's the first word out of his mouth? Peace. Peace be still, and the waves, the waves go into silence and all is well. And they go on from there across the sea to accomplish further the ministry of Jesus here on this earth. I gotta think that when Peter is in this, he's in a storm of his own. 
There, there are waves shackled to him that are seeking to kill him the next day. And what does he remember his Lord telling him when he faced a similar situation? Peace. He remembers the peace of God. Are we trusting in God in such a way that we can rest in him even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of death? Do we believe that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us? Do we actually believe that what God has done in our life, in our community, in our salvation and sanctification is enough of a reminder for us to continue free of anxiety, free of worry, because the Lord has dealt with us bountifully in those things? Is it enough? Peter trusted in God's plan to the point that he slept, and clearly he slept deeply, so deep that the angel of the Lord had to strike him in the side to wake him up. He was so deep. Could you imagine, like, we're in, we're, in the, we're in the cell, okay? An angel of the Lord is on display, and it says shines, is shining in the, the cell. This is the light of the glory of God. We've done sermons about this before, or, or maybe in systematic, where when we, hear, when we hear things like the light of the glory of God or the light shown from an angel of the Lord, this is bright. People fall down as a result of this light. And these guards are still sleeping, and Peter just sleeps right through it. It's like it doesn't even phase him. The angel has to strike him in the side to wake him up. It seemed that even in his state of a awokenness, right, where he awoke, uh, he was still unsure of what was really happening. He just knew someone's telling him something, and it seems really important that he do whatever it may be that this thing is telling him. It seemed that he was in such a state of rest that he was unsure of what was going on. He didn't know if this was a vision, as he's had before, very recently, right? We, we read about uh, um, back a couple of chapters in Acts 10, I believe, when, when we, we uh, see, you know, God gave him a vision of the, the sort of blanket falling down and him telling him to rise, Peter, kill, and eat. That whole conversation was a vision. So Peter, having visions in his past, was like, ah, is this a vision? What's happening here? Or is this reality? He's unsure. After coming to his senses, so the whole narrative between 6 and 10 draw, should draw us to attention, not on the miraculous, although that's something to be said. It's wonderful. It should draw our attention to Peter's response in verse 11. What is Peter's response? He says, now I am sure that the Lord... You should underline that, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I'll tell you what they're expecting, and Peter knows. They're expecting his head. And the Lord has delivered him. Peter knew exactly who to thank for his escape. Peter knew exactly and precisely where credit was due. It was to God that the Lord has sent his angel. I know for certain, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. Hold on to that for later. That's going to be really important. Hold on to that. So moving on, our text states in verses 12 through 13 that the church was praying, continuously praying earnestly for Peter and for the church at large in the home of a wealthy woman named Mary, who was the mother of a man named John, also called Mark. This is John Mark. This is a man who's going to be a pivotal player moving forward. It's going to be very important. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, likely influenced heavily by this man who just got freed from prison, Peter. So he wrote his Gospel. He's the man who Barnabas and Paul are going to have a huge disagreement about. And he's also the man at the end of his days when Paul is saying, this man is very useful to me for ministry. Because reconciliation is real. God's people can forgive. God's people should work together on things. But so the, this man, Jarmark, is going to become a major piece to the puzzle moving forward in the church. But that's a story for another sermon. Oh, I'm going to let that come as it may. 
Peter left this prison under the cover of night and made his way through the streets. He realized, oh, this is real. God has delivered me from this. I need to get out of here now. And so he books it through the streets. And he comes to the gate of a woman. Now, why I said this, uh, this woman is, uh, is wealthy is because he's not coming to a door to knock on it. He's coming to a gate. That implies wealth. This woman is wealthy. She has leveraged her wealth, leveraged her standing among the community for gospel good and for the church's benefit. The application there should be pretty clear. Whether in, in, in poverty or in wealth, leverage what we have to serve God and to love the church. But I digress. Upon seeing Peter, who's a fugitive at this point, he's running from the law, a servant girl named Rhoda answers at the gate and, and then so overwhelmed with emotion, you know, overwhelmed with an unexpected joy, she takes off and doesn't open the gate to this fugitive standing outside of it. She runs back inside and says, I found Peter. I hear his voice. And they have a lapse in hope for just a moment. You might not get that from this text. They might be just confused. But they're having a lapse in their hope that God will answer the prayers they've been praying earnestly. Their prayers for deliverance they don't believe in this moment actually happened. They're trying to come up with reasons as to why this is not Peter, but simply the angel of Peter. And we could get into why they're bringing this stuff up, but I think that's best left for another day. That'll be a fun thing for you ladies in Bible study to talk about, is why they're bringing up, oh, this is Peter's angel. Um, I'll leave that for you guys. That'll be fun. So, so, they were, so Peter is just continuing to knock, though. He, very clearly, he knows it's him. He knows where he, he's at. He's continuing to knock on this gate, beckoning them to come out, and eventually they do, and they rejoice, and they weep. They know, this is Peter. This is him. We can touch him. We can know him. We can hear him. And so he, he comes in. They rejoice at Peter's return, and they send word to James. Now, this may seem confusing. There's a lot of, that's not this guy. It's actually this guy happening in this text, right? There's a lot of, we see a word and we immediately think one thing and it might actually be another. So I just want to do a little bit of biblical sort of dictionary work for us to be able to understand who this is. This is not James that we just heard killed. Peter knew that, they, that, that James the Great was, was dead. They knew that James uh, the Apostle, the disciple of Christ, one of the 11 disciples that remained at Pentecost, uh, they knew that he, was, uh, that he was dead. Peter was not fooled here. This is actually James, the brother of Jesus who at this point would have been leading the church in Jerusalem and would until he is eventually killed, uh, tr tradition states, thrown off of a building uh, or a cliff or a high place. He's thrown off of a high place and, and killed for the sake of Christ. So that James, though, is still alive and well, and he is leading the church in Jerusalem. Peter is, has been about. He's been in the surrounding regions preaching the gospel, setting up churches, appointing elders, doing all those things that churches do, and then, uh, and then he has um, now come back to Jerusalem, been arrested, seen James beheaded, and now is awaiting his own death, freed, and now he wants to send word back to James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, that Peter's alive. Don't, don't miss the fact that he wants the church to have hope. He's sending word and reminding them, don't lose hope, don't lose heart. They haven't killed him. Even if they did, it'd be okay. But hey, Peter is alive and well. So he wants to remind the church in Jerusalem of this. He sends word and then immediately leaves the city and goes to another place. Because why is a serpent innocent as doves, right? Don't be foolish, be effective. And Peter wants to be more effective for the gospel. That doesn't mean James was not, 
But Peter had an opportunity to continue on in his ministry for some years until eventually he would be killed for the gospel. But, um, so yeah, Peter wanted to get out of the city and go to another place. So now we must realize that, it, that Peter is not referring to James the Apostle, but James the brother of Jesus, who will eventually go on to write the New Testament work of the book of James, that epistle. So this here, this whole section here raises a question that I think is pretty fair. If we're just being honest, I think it's a fair question. Did God answer one prayer, but not others? So God clearly answered the prayer that they were praying earnestly for Peter. But what about James? The, the, the first James, the one who lost his head. The first James. Was he not prayed for? Surely he was. Surely they knew that he was going to be executed. Surely they knew of his arrest. Surely they loved him. Surely the church was praying for them. And so is it true then that the church, even though they were praying for both men, that God chose to answer one prayer of deliverance and not another? The church prayed for James and he died. They prayed for Peter and he lived. What do we make of this? Is God just picking and choosing who he wants to live and who he wants to die arbitrarily? Keyword there, arbitrarily? No, no, it's not. Ultimately, guys, what we have to understand is that God is in the high heavens and he does as he pleases. He's the one with the plan. We're just the ones who are walking by that plan. God is in control of these things. And because of the eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ, if we have been made one with him, if we're co-heirs under the, the gospel, made to be reconciled with Jesus, we have, the scripture tells us, an eternal inheritance. And that inheritance shall not be taken away. It shall not be destroyed by, rot, by rust or moth. It shall endure forever. That is the inheritance that James was delivered into. Amen. James stepped foot into deliverance that is much better than the de deliverance Peter had. Losing your life for the sake of the gospel while gaining eternity in the process is not a bad deal. So oftentimes we lament the fact, and it's true, we do need to grieve. That is an okay thing, to lament the fact that our brothers and sisters in the faith are being killed. But know this, not just the martyrs, but even the, those who are in Christ yet have died, those loved ones that we cherish, that die from regular means and not you know, persecution. Their inheritance is immediate. It is now. They get to be face to face with Jesus. If there's anything I want to call deliverance, it's that. And so we have to remember Peter and James, they, it was both yes and amen. Their prayers were answered. It, was, it just looked differently. And so when we sit bedside at a, re, a relative, someone that we love, who is, uh, just as we talked about in systematic theology this morning, who is taking those short, shallow breaths as Jesus did at the end of his life, just as we all will do at the end of our lives, as we observe that in the people that we love, of if they are found in Christ, know that they are being delivered, that they are being healed, that your prayers are not going unheard. They're actually being answered. Yes and amen in Jesus. Amen. So he is taking his people home by means of death. Uh, uh, my mentor once told me, next to salvation in Jesus Christ and all that comes with it, death is the greatest gift God has given his people because he takes them home. Once they have this salvation, he now gets to return. He's turned a curse that was a curse for us. He's turned it into a blessing because that's what God does. So remember, both of these prayers have been answered yes and amen in Jesus. Oh, we see a peace that has been filled with prayer, right? A prayer-filled peace. 
Next, we see a pain-filled pride, pain-filled pride. This will be verses 18 through 25. This will be a bit shorter, um, but still really good things that we need to learn from this text. So we see Herod's response to everything that's happened in verses uh, 18. So Herod uh, is overcome with anger, right? It says here that now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, And after, Herod searched for him and did not find him. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Herod was infuriated. He was absolutely infuriated, and he examined these sentries as a means of enacting his infuriation. So he had missed here a golden opportunity to seize some political points with these Jews. James was one thing, but Peter... The man who stood, one of the two men who stood before them in the Sanhedrin twice that we know of, the man who stood up at Pentecost and delivered the sermon that began this whole mess, the man who is now leading and going out and setting up churches, that man, we're going to kill him. He missed it. We've lost that guy. Now the the Jews might not recover from this. And so Herod is absolutely infuriated that he missed this golden opportunity to gain points with the people he's ruling. There was a dispute. He put the soldiers uh, who were guarding him to death. There's no debate here. Those guys that he sentenced to death, they were killed very quickly. All of them. All 16 of them. They were put to death. Because Herod is a man who lives by the sword. He enacts justice. What he perceives to be justice, anyway. He put the soldiers who were guarding him to death and left to deal with the situation that was arising in Caesarea. Um, And so, in this area, we see um, in the areas of Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea. Again, Josephus helps us here. There was at this time a dispute going on in that area of Caesarea about which port we were going to use for the main port of importation. Uh, Importation of food specifically because if you'll remember, and I love this, if you'll remember uh, last week, um, we, we heard of a person named Agabus, right? Agabus made this prophecy, and it was odd. It was like, oh, uh, who, <laughs> the church has prophets during this time. Well, yes, they do. And so they stood up. He proclaimed that there was going to be a famine. This famine has kind of begun. We see the remnants of the beginnings of this famine here. These people were frustrated and, and confused, and they relied so heavily on King Herod for what? For food, for, their, for th- the means by which they're going to live. And so they know that the, the, whatever port is the main port of the importation of food from Rome or from wherever else, that port's going to receive a greater share. They're going to receive the lion's share of all the food. And so they want that to be, and there's kind of three ports in that area that are all vying for this you know, responsibility and this opportunity. Herod has to go down and deal with this. So he goes, he deals with the dis- dispute, and our text tells us that he holds a large gathering. Um, and uh, it, he stands and d- delivers what our text says is an oration, right? This is a large mass audience speech. That's what this is r- really uh, uh, going to be. Luke and Josephus, that first century historian that I told you I'd be talking about a lot, Josephus, both record the reaction of the people. It is to speak of him as a god. They declare that his words are of a god and not of a man. They are giving worship and praise to this man, mere man, low, like lowercase m, man. So it's recorded in Josephus' account <clears throat> that they were heaping upon Herod impious flattery that he was not refusing. 
He did not refuse their impious flattery. You may say, well, I mean, just, just based on our text, it might seem that the blasphemy is on the part of the people, not necessarily on Herod. He's just sitting there and he did nothing to incite this. That's not true. Josephus tells us in his recorded history that Herod came out in shining robes adorned wholly, like entirely, in fine silver. This dude is standing in the morning sun as a beacon of pride and blasphemy. That's what this man is coming out giving a speech at. He's dressed completely from head to toe as a god would be in their culture in silver. And he is shining like the sun, saying, look here, I am going to help you. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. Trust in me, I will give you food, right? That's what Herod is saying. His appearance and his manipulation of their resources communicate his desire for them to see him as a god, as a god king. Luke records for us here in verse 23 that indeed Herod failed to give God the glory. Herod did not turn away those words of flattery and point them to God in heaven as he should, but instead boasted in his own power. He thought himself greater than God and thereby found himself opposing him. He's opposing God. He's made himself an enemy. Herod did not turn away those very words of flattery, but made himself an opponent of God. Contrast this with the response of Paul and Barnabas, who just a few chapters later that we'll learn, the same sort of compliments are being heaped on Paul and Barnabas. And what did they say? We are just men. We are men given by God to you to preach this message. And they preach. They say, these, are, these, are, these men speak as if a God. And Paul and Barnabas are like, absolutely not. They immediately shut the conversation down and tell them of the truth, of the truth of scriptures. And eventually we'll get them kicked out of whatever city they're in. So uh, we can see here how severely short Herod falls of the mark that is set for God's people when it comes to praise being uh, lambasted upon them, right? Herod is missing the mark entirely. Our text tells us the fate that befell Herod and befell his pride. He felt, he, so he uh, felt the incredibly severe pangs of death in the way that he died. Um, our text describes for us briefly what I think uh, would need a little bit of explanation. It says he is, he was, um, uh, he is, yeah, he is in verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So our text described it in a way that might be a little misleading to English eyes. Uh, we, we read this and we think chronologically or consequently or uh, something to, to that effect. Um, and we, we really should look at it from the Greek perspective. I'm not going to go into the words, but I'll summarize and tell you this. So this uh, it says that he was struck with worms and breathed his last. Now, this does not mean that he was immediately had worms all over him and he, he breathed his last right there. It's actually not, not the case. What is the case, Josephus' account tells us he lived on for about four or five more days. But in that moment, what happened was, um, there's a great scholar and a great uh, account of this that I recommend all of you read, a biblical scholar and medical doctor named uh, Jean Sloat Morton. John Sloat Morton, he states clearly in his, uh, in his exposition of this passage um, that this is a bursting of a cyst in Herod that is filled with tapeworms. So it's a cyst in this man's body, in his abdomen, that bursts in this moment. When it says the angel of the Lord struck him, that is the bursting of the cyst. God, God created this man's body, knows how it works, has been 
because of his lifestyle and his sinful choices, Herod has been leading to a point of sickness and eventual death. But God says, now's the time. Because God is the Lord, not only of life, but of death. He is the one who enacts sickness as much as he enacts health. God is sovereign. If we believe God is sovereign, we have to believe it in totality. We'll get there in just a moment. But I want you to know, this is it. So inside the cyst is, a literal, is literal thousands of tapeworms. What's interesting about this is these worms, they are both male and female. They can reproduce, and they do, within this man. And so for four or five days, this man had worms eating him alive from the inside out. And then on the fifth day, he died an agonizing, absolutely terrible death. He was eaten from the inside out. Now, I don't want to be unnecessarily grotesque and focus on this, but you wouldn't get that necessarily from, from just a glazed over reading of this text. It puts flavor to the type of death that those who find themselves opposing God can await for themselves. Now, it's not always the case, right? Some people die fluffy and nice, peaceful deaths that for their entire lives, they've, they have absolutely rebelled against God and have died this. But this puts flavor as to what is going on with Herod, one who has vehemently persecuted the church of God. Herod had attempted to rob God of glory, an impossible task that leads to his eventual death. This man was surrounded by those who reviled him, hated him, and in his last moments, he died a terrible death. So the last two verses of our text seek to get us to where the church is going. So in light of all of this, so Herod stood up and delivered mighty, uh, uh, charismatic, you know, well-communicated words to these people, but the words themselves were blasphemous, and God struck him and killed him. God killed him. Let's be clear about that. God led to this man's death. And then, after that, what's happening everywhere else as a result of, of God's goodness and his word going forth? It increased and multiplied. The church is growing. Christianity is gaining a foothold in the world because God's word is true. It's not false. It's not, it's not propping up any one man as equal with God as Herod's words were, but God's word was moving forward. So the, the last verse here seeks us to get from Jerusalem. This is going to act as our, our sort of transition between Jerusalem to Antioch, where the majority of the rest of Acts is going to take place, at least centered around this hub that is going to be sending out on all of these missionary journeys. And so this, the last portion here, is going to serve as a wonderful transition into our next text, which that's all I'm going to let it be for this morning. I want to close with this, okay? I want to close with this. What are the ways in your life, whether believer or unbeliever, that you are seeking to rob God of his glory? And by what means? Are you failing to attribute not only life and health, but sickness and death to God? Make no mistake, it is God who sent this terrible sickness to Herod. God will and does judge sinful lifestyles with sickness and death. This is true. We see God over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New. So it's not wrathful God of the Old Testament, loving God of the New Testament. We end the New Testament, y'all, and he's striking someone dead with sickness. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, God is using our fallen state as humans that is filled with disease and brokenness to bring about his righteous judgment. God does that, and he does it because he's good. 
and because he desires his glory above all else. Who does he judge with these? Those who seek to rob his glory, those who oppose him at every stretch. It doesn't mean we don't need to lament and weep and grieve over those who are sick and, and dying in our, our world and do everything we can to help them. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying here is God alone is sovereign and you are not. I am not. So what ways are you seeking to rob God of glory? Do you presume on God's goodness by failing to trust him in the midst of difficult circumstances? The people of God in our text have shown that they trusted him through earnest prayer. Are you praying about what you're worrying about? Are you concerned with God's glory even in the midst of things that make you feel anxious? Do you think that it is bringing God, do you think that it is bringing glory to God by thinking that you can attain salvation through the life and means and the, the things by which you can put your own hands to? Do you think that you can attain salvation through means of your own? Are you robbing God ultimately of the glory of denying his son, Jesus Christ? To deny that Jesus is exactly who he said he is and that the Bible is true, you're attempting to rob God of glory. And the truth is that Jesus, just as we learned about this morning in equipping hour, he came in the form of an infant. He lived a perfect life from infancy. He humbled himself, giving up a portion of his design, uh, divine being his eternality and became human. He condescended to this earth. He took on flesh. He lived perfectly. He died in the stead of ruined sinners and he rose again in a body victorious. And he ascended to heaven where he sits in that body today, interceding for us, the church. He is interceding for his people. And he offers salvation to all that would put this, the, their trust in his name. He has written their names in the Lamb's book of life and has prepared a seat at the table for them in glory. This is the hope that we have as Christians to not understand this gospel and to not put our faith and our trust here and here alone. That is robbing God of glory. That is to be found opposing God in the end. To not be found opposing God means to trust solely and submit to God entirely in the person of Jesus. So do not make the mistake of boasting in yourself. I love you, but you're no God. We are, on, we are not on equal footing with God. I, I've seen so often in my own life, the, the greatest missteps that I've had have been because I want to put myself in God's shoes. I want to be on the throne of my own heart. I want to be the captain of my ship. I want to be the, the, the purveyor and the captain of my own destiny. But, but the truth is I'm not. God is God and I am not. Instead, instead of robbing God of glory and have found opposing God, instead of, of declaring that God is dead and, and, and seeing Christianity and this, and this whole gospel-centered life as a life of weaklings, instead of saying that all Christians are just corrupt hypocrites, and instead of saying that you can oppose God with no consequence as those men at the beginning of our sermon did, instead of being like that, let us say, in uh, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. I know if Peter would have known of this song 2,000 years ago, I'm sure it would have been on his mind as he slept peacefully in that jail cell, awaiting whatever God had in store for him, whether it be good and glorious and, 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 and 
uh, many more years of ministry as he got, or whether it is a few more hours of praiseworthy life and eventual de- death, where he gets to go and then t- to live, though it be Christ, to die is absolute gain. So I know Peter would have agreed with this song in this moment. So may we trust Christ to the end of our days, however long that may be. May we not find ourselves opposing God, but submitting to him in hope and love, knowing that what he has in store for us is far better than anything we can contrive for ourselves. So let's pray, and then we'll continue to respond in song. Will you pray with me? God, we love you, and we're grateful for your son. Thank you for sending him as a substitute for ruined sinners, sinners that so often are anxious for everything. Sinners that are so often mistaken our own desires for your plan and your will. Thank you for redeeming us from the pit of hell and restoring us to life and hope and faith in Jesus. So we pray as we respond, it is in him and him alone that we trust. May we not trust in our own words and be found opposing God as Herod did, but rather may we trust in your divine sovereign will as Peter did, and may we have peace in doing so. Be with us now as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.